Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Today, we have Scott Sternberg, the former designer founder of Band of Outsiders, and currently he is operating and designing Entire World, the new direct-to-consumer fashion line. You may be asking, why am I talking to a very successful, famous designer in fashion? And I think you should stay tuned to listen because there's a lot of parallels between cooking and fashion and not just cooking and fashion, but I feel that fashion is sort of the bellwether for where culture goes in in the world today. Uh, But first up, I want to talk about salted mackerel, King's Hawaiian bread, and soups and stews at Korean barbecue spots. So stick around. That's all coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new pure leaf blackberry iced tea that we have here at the Spotify studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new pure leaf blackberry iced tea. Visit amazon.com slash pure leaf and enter 20 pure leaf. That's 20 pure leaf for 20% off your purchase of new pure leaf Blackberry iced tea. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. I want to talk about three things. Mackerel, salted mackerel at that. Not a very beloved fish, but I think if you ask a lot of chefs and cooks, it's a highly underrated fish. There's a couple varieties of mackerel. We won't get into that. I'm talking specifically about the salted mackerel that you can get at Asian markets. And it's an oily fish. It has a very distinct flavor. Mackerel is delicious, fresh pickled. But one of my favorite ways to eat it is salted mackerel that's been pan fried or broiled. And that's how I just made it for lunch today. I popped it in the toaster oven on the broiler setting, took it out of the package, and I put it skin side down first to get it nice and crispy. And for about 12 minutes, uh, about six minutes each side, served with some rice and some pickles. Delicious. And I just wonder why and how we can't see this more often in other supermarkets. And that sort of is my litmus test about where we are in Asian food and Asian food acceptance in America is when you start to see salted mackerel, which isn't like a dried thing. It's like brined. So it's not like jerky. It's definitely got moisture. It's just salty. It's certainly salty. But uh, you eat it with rice. For those that know what I'm talking about, I don't have to explain anything, but I would say it is not really eaten outside of Korean and Japanese culture. Salted fish is abundant in all Asian culture. And I just was asking myself in the future, would you ever see such a thing? And I don't want to say no, because you can now find fish sauce in a lot of supermarkets and the Asian food aisle. And if you go to your Asian market, your your Ranch 99s, your H-Marts, you can find it. It's such a simple preparation. It does have some bones in it, but the kinds of bones that are easy to eat around. And it's the kind of fish that I want to eat once a week or so. Uh, I almost always have it in my freezer. Whenever I go to the Asian grocery store, I'm always buying a pack or two of salted mackerel. The second thing I wanted to talk about was King's Hawaiian. I've talked about it before, but more and more, it's becoming my bread of choice for sandwiches, for grilled cheese, for all things. It is one of the great Asian-American family-run businesses. I've grown up eating it. One of the best ways to eat King's Hawaiian is toasted with butter. If you just put some butter on a slice of King's Hawaiian, and growing up, they only had the the bigger uh, you know, loaves of King's Hawaiian, then you cut a thick slice of it. Uh, now it has 
comes in every shape and size. But if you just toast it with some butter, I think it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find something more delicious. It's really right up there for me. And I've just been using it as my sandwich bread of choice. So shout out to King's Hawaiian. It's something that you know. I don't know if I'm going to go back to regular old white bread or or Martin's potato rolls or anything. We use it at Moon Palace in Las Vegas at the Venetian for our our sliders, which we call tasties. But in general, a very underrated bread. I think you're going to see it in most of your supermarkets and go buy a pack of King's Hawaiian and use it for your sandwiches or any any way you eat bread. I think the sweetness is a perfect balance to a lot of things that, um, whether it's a sandwich or a bacon, egg, and cheese or just any bread preparation, very, very underrated. So for those that are fans of King's Hawaiian, I'm not saying anything new, but if you've never tried King's Hawaiian, please, please check it out as we want to sort of celebrate and put to the forefront anything that's Asian American, particularly with a lot of this discrimination and hate crimes, I want to take the time to celebrate all the good things that uh, are Asian American in this country. Lastly, I was having a discussion with Chris Ying about underrated things. And yes, this isn't an overrated, underrated, but sort of a mini over-under. The thing that gets lost when people go get Korean food at Korean barbecue, and it's not the only kind of Korean food, but it's certainly the entry point for Korean food, is that any place that sells kalbi and prugogi and all these marinated meats and grilled meats, and it doesn't have to be just strictly Korean, but any place that goes through a ton of beef or any kind of protein product, but let's just say Parks Barbecue is an example, or Sunundang or whatever, like all these Korean restaurants that have kalbi, which is the marinated short rib or grilled plain short rib. If that is what they sell, more often than not, they are going to have the best soups and stews. The the tangs and the jiges are, I'm going to say, maybe better than the actual grilling of the food. And if what I said makes no sense to you, this is something that we're going to go much deeper into. But if you're one of these listeners that are trying to go out and dine outside, and you should, because a lot of these Korean restaurants have tabletop grilling outside of the restaurants, don't just order that, the grilled meats, which are going to be delicious. Order some soups. Some of the beef soups are going to be best in class. I really can't stress that enough, especially, for example, Parks Barbecue has some of the best jiges in the country, and especially their gochujang jjigae, their, their spicy chili stew is probably one of my favorite things to eat in all of Los Angeles. I put that in my top five best things to eat, but it's not just parks. So many establishments that sell Korean barbecue, the thing that is underrated is their soups and stews. Go order some. And especially during the pandemic, because if you don't eat there, these soups and stews are extraordinarily for bringing home and reheating in your apartment or your house. So that was my rambling, incoherent take on salt and mackerel, King's Hawaiian, and soups and stews at Korean barbecue spots. Well, now I want to order all three of those things or eat those things right now, but I will shut up and let you get into my podcast with Scott Sternberg, founder of Entire World. Check out his website to order clothes that are going to be very hard to get and this is a very interesting, fun conversation with someone that I'm friends with and have admired for a long time. Here's my conversation with Scott Sternberg and Christian helping out. We are joined with Scott Sternberg of Entire World. And I asked my wife about Entire World, and she says... I can't buy it. It sells out instantly. And um, Scott is a beloved person in the industry. So what is Entire World before we get into everything else? Oh, gosh. Uh, Entire World is, uh, it's the stuff you live in. It's its this idea of a clothing company, a lifestyle brand, whatever, that takes all these banal items in your closet, like underwear and socks and T-shirts and sweats, and makes them uh, divine, makes them covetable, makes them something you love as much as what you thought before you encountered entire world was the most perfect thing in your closet. It values things like color and comfort over kind of old 
tropes of what fashion was about, right? Um, it's not about a certain type of cool or a certain type of vintage look. It's this like clean slate, uh, utopian way of approach to dressing. Will it fit big boys like myself and Christian? Because Band of Outsiders was know, the yeah. coolest thing in the world for all of my fashion friends and those that are, you know, in, in high fashion. But, I, you know, the, the pant leg wouldn't fit over my wrist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Band was ridiculous. That was somewhat a function of... ridiculous. It was somewhat a function of design, right? And then it, it sort of became the self-perpetuating thing where that's... that I didn't realize that that's what made it fashion was that it was so tiny and so exclusive, which was fashion at the time, pre-social media. And yes, it was like the not, it was like for like 0.75 scale human beings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but entire world is, is really the antithesis of that. It's like easy and oversized. And yes, it'll fit big boys like you. We got to get Amazing. you a sweatsuit. Because our good friend Alan Yang, the producer director, he was yeah. like the biggest band fan of all time. Because he's he's a tiny, he's so tiny. He's a, yeah. he's a perfectly tiny person, and <laughs> I was always jealous of him. So I am beyond excited that you have this line. I just, I just can't get my hands on it either. So what what is happening with this DTC company you built that is a? Would you label it as a phenomenon? It's a, certainly a success, but what's going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. We, uh, it's a good and a, and a bad sort of frustrating problem. You know, we've been at it. I started this in 2018 and it looked pretty much like it looks now. Uh, I didn't anticipate a pandemic, but I was trying to achieve what I just described. Um, just sort of applying high design principles to a totally different set of stuff. And when the, but doing that, uh, has been really hard. You know, a DTC business is not a wholesale business, which means I don't have stores paying me for stuff before they sell it. So I had to raise money from investors who uh, don't want to invest in apparel anymore, for the most part, venture funding, anything like that. So we're an underfunded business um, that's been kind of bootstrapping it to some extent with bridge financing since we launched and the pandemic hit. And we were actually really well set up at the beginning of COVID about a year ago, uh, we, before Chinese New Year, we got a sh shitload of sweats in. Um, and we were a little, uh, not scared, but we had really, we really bought into the, these key items. Um, and then all of a sudden they were just gone and we couldn't keep them in. And because of COVID supply chain issues, which have been resolved, but more than that, just because of money, we can only buy so much inventory at a time. So we keep what we think over anticipating demand. And apparel is such that you have to really order stuff like months and months in advance. It's not like um, you can't just whip it up in the kitchen. Uh, the supply chain is pretty long. So we just can't, we don't have the capital to even support the demand for the product, um, which is a little bit of a bummer, but also you really want the sweatsuit. So <laughs> it, it does its job psychologically. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit because I feel that there are um, a lot of similarities to fashion and food. And yeah. Tina Che, our good friend who has been in fashion forever, uh, has sort of kept me up to date on all the comings and goings. And I am the least fashionable male uh, around. <laughs> Maybe Ying is a close second, but um, <laughs> I don't know. We're um, pretty neck and neck here. But it's something I have followed the designers and the business of it, uh, of fashion, from the gap all the way on up, simply because I feel it was a perfect mirror image of the culinary world and how we eat. And I thought it was probably five to 10 years ahead for a long time. And then social media, you know, quickly shortened that gap. So culturally now, fashion is maybe just a couple months ahead of where food is going. Sure. Which is crazy to think about because I would get a lot of ideas like watching what you were doing and, and so on and so forth. And now it's not just food and fashion. It's furniture. It's, you know, Chris and I make TV shows for Hulu. It's basically every bucket of culture now doesn't know exactly what's happening anymore because how business used to get done doesn't work anymore. And the pandemic is not the reason why that happened. It is a symptom of, you know, it, it sort of exacerbated the symptom of what was underlying 
in the world at large. And I, I, I wanted to get back to where you started because I think it gives a framework of how you got to entire world. So we could use that as a vehicle for anyone that's not in fashion or food mm. to just be like, Oh, I can understand what's going on. And maybe gives me some insight as to what's around the corner. Sure. I mean, first of all, I started, I moved to LA, wanted to make movies and spent almost 10 years. I was an agent at CAA doing new media and marketing and kind of just dancing around this, these rarefied industries of fashion and food and fine art and film that pre-social media were, were just that, right? You, you couldn't quite touch them as a consumer. Um, they've now become democratized. But before that, they're really compelling to me because I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. I could read about them in like Vanity Fair and GQ and stuff like that. Um, by 28, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And by 29, I figured out I was going to make clothes and I started Band of Outsiders. And uh, I had spent enough time in Hollywood to understand how to infiltrate a rarefied industry. Um, and really within six months of making that decision and starting to make clothes, I was in all these amazing stores and in GQ and uh, was part of this new wave of American menswear designers with this company, Band of Outsiders. And it was something that it was super fun and, and really a time capsule of 2004 to, you know, 2013 was the real height of, height of Band of Outsiders. When we were in New York doing shows and, and, and you guys were cooking dinner for us afterwards or whatever it was, we were just riding the wave of what was American fashion at a very exciting time. Uh, and the business was pretty straightforward. We would uh, make a collection, a fall collection, uh, show it in a showroom to a bunch of buyers eventually show it in a fashion show with a bunch of magazine editors, um, create lightning in a bottle, hopefully a lot of buzz in a room. And that would affect sales. We would then go back and produce all the stuff. And six months later, we'd be in the store and rinse and repeat fall, spring, fall, spring, and keep going. Um, and it was a business that worked. I didn't raise money until seven years in. Um, I was a one man show for three years, uh, to a fault, all these, all these things. And that, you know, the world didn't know any better. At the same time, social media blogs were the first thing that were happening. Uh, the world was becoming less rarefied. Suddenly these bloggers were in front of fashion shows and were getting more page views than like Vogue or GQ. And then social media and suddenly anybody at the show was an editor, no matter what row you were in. And everybody had access to this stuff. And then e-commerce started proliferating, uh, which is something where everybody in fashion was like, oh, people aren't going to buy clothes online. And then people aren't going to buy luxury clothes online. And look at, look at where we are now. Um, can, you, can you hold up yeah. on that? Two, th yeah. two things I wanted to add is, one is, Band of Outsiders, when I first heard of that name, I was like, God damn, that's such a good name. And then, you know, you took it from the Godard film and... It still is just an amazing name. I've whenever I come up with a name, I'm always like, man, I want to use Band of Outsiders. What a good <laughs> fucking name! It'll be available soon. <laughs> um, but you know, and you talked about a little bit how the sausage gets made in fashion, and I've seen it, and it is the least glamorous profession next to maybe being a chef. It seems super glamorous, but when I saw you work, I was like, this job sucks. I told him. <laughs> you. Right when you get done with one show that you just sort of had a aneurysm over, you got a week break and then you got to get another show. And then each show could be the end of your career. Or at least that's how yep. you feel. Yep. I was like, this is impossible. And then I was like, oh my God, this is how I feel. <laughs> this is, these are the two dumbest professions I could possibly think of. And in terms of another sort of touch point that I find similarities is, and I don't think we could um, unpack it enough because I don't know if we've quite done an investigation, quite frankly, of what it what happened is the advent and the invention or the popularization of social media in fashion shows fundamentally altered the industry. Could I, you explain I, how yeah. that, I mean, you did, but like, I don't know if people see that or understand because they should see some parallels to food. Yeah. The cycle that I just described, which is that, you know, these shows would happen only a very small group of people would be able to see them firsthand. And then we would all go back and make the clothes for, for three to six months, however long it took to get them in the stores. Suddenly, 
And, and that information, those images of those shows, those magazines, those media companies could hold on to them until they needed to make money off of them, right? Till the clothes were available in stores and the advertisers want to spend money on the pages. And it all worked out really well. Social media, uh, like it does with everything, it just completely flattened the process, right? Just like it flattened any sort of hierarchy of, of, of editor. Anybody could become an editor. Everybody's uh, opinion is, 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 is relevant. It just took away the, it, 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 you know, it revealed the wizard behind the curtain. And so it really, the whole process and point of a show, uh, which are really cool, you know, however much, however torturous that whole thing was, we all sort of loved it at the time that, you, you, you know, you, you, creatively, it just pushes you and pushes you further. Cause, and Tina was always great with me this way. She really just always pushed me to, to take something to the next level and, and make it cumulative and interesting and, and all that. But social media just, uh, it just, it just flattened everything, the timeline and took power away from the media companies who really were driving trends. And we needed them, need them to drive trends and to drive sales. Um, and that's still crumbling. It's the, the fashion media in particular, they're hanging on for dear life. Um, mm. you look at Condé Nast, which is a company that is not making money. The leadership still is basically entrenched as it always has been for the past 20, 30 years. Um, they kind of haven't figured that out. So ultimately, I think that like what this is doing is for like for somebody like me, I just took it all into my own hands, completely rejected the system and the business model. If we can scale enough, makes a lot of sense. Whereas that relentless cycle that you just described, like I have nothing to do with that anymore. It's truly cumulative what we do and totally off season. But yeah, I mean, it's, it just took the consumer's expectation and understanding of what we're doing to a completely different place. And so the product and the delivery mechanism needed to change, needs to change in, in, in relation to that and reaction to that. Uh, and it's oddly still not changed. If you really look at fashion and how, what happens now, um, people are still there. No, everybody's best interest is to keep that, that system in place. Um, even though I think the consumer's completely moved on. I mean, in the in the food world, for the longest time, we would always we would always talk about that scene in *The Devil Wears Prada*, where uh, you know she, the Anna Wintour character is telling Anne Hathaway that the sweater she's wearing is because you know. 19 months ago, an editor picked this color for her, you know, it trickled down all the way down to her bargain basement thing. And her I think that's the sort of gate. Her, her frumpy blue sweater was like a cerulean blue. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we would talk about that all the time in food as like a parallel. But it sounds to me like you're both saying that is the structure that's falling apart. That's not true anymore. Or that's what you're working against is that like one person in a room. 3,000 miles away determines what you eat and what you but wear. But that, peop- that one person in the room is still propping up the whole fucking thing. Right. And they're not giving this up. <laughs> they're not trying to no. give up this position, right? I mean, Yang, think about it in food. Yeah. Everything has fucking changed, literally. You, th- the pandemic, again, just accelerated this thing that was happening, but with social media, blogs, Instagram, like, why the fuck do you need these gatekeepers? Mm-hmm. Why do you need an eater? Why do you need all of these yeah. things New York Times has pivoted to making recipes, right? Like we're at a place right now in food media where people are like, what the fuck do we talk about? Well, I don't know how this works in food, but I I, I think what media needs to be is, is, is critical thinking and critical writing. Mm-hmm. And in fashion, that used to be pretty good. Like at the New York Times, Amy Spindler, uh, Kathy Horan, you know, these were people who were writing about fashion in the context of, Art history, pop culture history, anthropology, politics. Robin Gavon is one of the few who's still doing something really interesting. In terms of food criticism, I'm not a foodie. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but I did love Jonathan Gold and read everything he wrote and, and it, it, because it maybe it was about LA as much as, as it was about food and so many other things. But I think. What social media did somehow was all everybody, all these media companies were like, cha- the gatekeepers were like chasing after um, likes and uh, social media engagement instead of digging deeper into something that could add value to you or me, 
which is to help contextualize what we're doing to the consumer in a way that's uh, additive and deep, rich, um, not this sort of uh, whatever's happening on social media, which I also find super valuable. Um, the other thing is these are big brands, these media companies, you know, even the new ones, Eater, name whoever it is. I don't know why they're not, they don't have an office in LA and they're setting up a production company in Netflix, you know, like, I mean, look at what you're doing. Um, it's, uh, it's very strange, just this total confluence of worlds where, you know, to, to survive and thrive, somebody like you has to embrace media. Um, it becomes like part of this coherent picture of what you do and, and, uh, how people even experience your restaurants and your food. Absolutely. You know, it's about having the opportunity to, 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 to like have the option to say what you want to say. And I think anybody has that right now with social media, but I think you added something you said to, to, you know, these media companies or the gatekeepers needed to contextualize and to sort of enrich the message rather than sort of democratize it and, and chase the likes, as you say, I'd add, or maybe even disagree to a point because it's, it gets us to where entire world is at. I feel that it's not just media. I think what people want on social media, whether it's on TikTok or whatever, or, or a, a, a web magazine, they want pragmatic, useful information, right? On top sure. of anything that might be like, oh, I didn't know that perspective exists. Like, yes, that's important. I think what is more important is people have glossed over the fact that, oh, that's, that's, that's something I can do. And mm. this, this list of top five things aren't just like throwaways. They're actually really useful for me. And they may not be useful two months from now, but right now it is useful. And that's the definition of American pragmatism as a philosophy. It is what is useful for you in that moment. And that is going to be most truthful. And I feel that that is also guided where you're at right now, because pragmatism has shaped what you're doing right now. I feel like we need to just accept the fact that people just want normal shit and they want it to be functional across the board, food to fashion, to music, to whatever. And I don't know why, maybe it's not buzzy enough, but people just think it's boring. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is It is sort of boring, but I don't think it, it's that. I don't think it's that pared down. I think that, you know, the, the, the big connection between fashion and food to me is that we're both providing things that people need, but we're putting these these large aesthetic flourishes over them, whatever whatever that means in relation to food aesthetics, but, you know taste and, and all those other elements. But it's really just like you need this stuff to kind of survive. It's just a different patina now. It's maybe less exciting the way you describe it. I get excited about comfort as a design element. I think that's a really cool thing. I like comfort food. I think there's a lot to say about that, whatever that means to, to an individual. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think media can be all a bunch of things. I think it can be about this moment and, and giving exactly what you just said, some sort of something sort of pragmatic. I think brands can be that too. Listen, I'll shift to not away from, from what we're doing, but you know, I'm always balancing this with, with items or ideas or images that are less pragmatic and more utopian or more weird. I mean, a lot of what I try to do with entire world in terms of the imagery, I'm constantly thinking like, how can this just be a little weirder? Um, I want to fly the freak flag as, as high as it can go because the clothes are so grounded. Um, Do you think that's because it can be the most subversive in a way that's sort of like not seen as subversive? That is the most subversive thing you can do by fucking up the thing that is the most normal and comforting? Totally. Completely. Because everything else, at least in my world, had been checked, right? It just had been done. I mean, fashion still, and it's not done. Look at streetwear. Look at how streetwear's taken over fashion. Look, go out in New York. I don't know what it's like right now, but you walk the streets and like, you can't find a t-shirt without a very large graphic statement on it, right? <laughs> Everything is, is just maximalism uh, beyond. So yeah, like I felt like I could make the biggest impact by, by exploring the banal essentially. 
This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It's interesting because I think about you know, putting aside all the industry and what's happening with the trends, both in food and fashion and where things are headed, I look at the trajectory that you both have had in your careers. And there are obviously so many similarities, right? You know, you came from Dayton, Ohio to LA, Dave moved from Virginia to New York. And I think immediately jumped into like for you, the cutting edge of what uh, the most uh, fashionable, interesting people in the world wanted to wear. Dave jumped into the New York restaurant scene, the epicenter of all dining. And, you know, he worked in fine dining restaurants. And then you both hit this point where I think you, I mean, Dave in his way wanted to go back to basics as well, wanted to get to what more people were eating, what was going to affect more people. You know, is that, you know, it's, I, I recognize that trajectory too. I used to edit the most uh, twee literary magazine in the entire world. And McSweeney's that 50 people read somehow. <laughs> and then, and then Dave and I started the most high-minded intellectual food magazine ever. And then we've both reached this point sort of in more maturity where, hey, are we just, we're not mad at what we were doing before. We were genuinely interested in it, but I think we have with age reach this new place. Is there, am I characterizing this right for both of you? Like you've, you, you got excited about this thing. You dove into the world and then reached this point where, Hey, I, I'm maybe only feeding or clothing a small amount of people. I mean, no doubt for me, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be basic or not basic, the aesthetic or, or even I, you know, whatever it is, but has it from a design perspective, like being a product designer was much more interesting than being a fashion designer. An idea that somebody could pick up a t-shirt of mine without any context, even any brand context at all, and just touch it and feel it and look at it. And because of the price, it was to, it was inherently democratic and, and attainable for, for a much wider swath of people. Like that became really compelling to me that it didn't have to be in Barney's and a rack next to all these other fancy brands or in a magazine, which don't basically exist anymore anyway. <laughs> it didn't need any adjacencies or context and it could just be a great t-shirt. And it was uh, the language of t-shirts. I guess basics are quite democratic. Yeah. That was really exciting. I felt like I sort of. I don't mean to sound like an ingrate, but I felt like I checked the box of the fancy people and that was great. We did it. And they all think I'm clever and, 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 you know, creative and okay, let's move on to something real now. How do you both look at that still, Dave? I mean, it's similar, you know, Chris, it's very, very similar. I mean, the difference is, is when he's done with a show or a line, it's done. Right. And I would, say for myself, it's different in the sense that I have restaurants that are still open that are doing very adventurous things. I used to want three mission stars. If we get it great, I don't want to, it doesn't have that same meaning for me personally, but that doesn't mean that Sean and Sue at Code don't want that. Like my version of the story is over and it's someone else's version of the story in their journey in their life. So it's it's like this multiverse thing that's happening at Momofuku. Mm. And um, I don't know, it's a very complicated thing. So I personally don't know exactly what I want, but I'm more attracted to populism than I am to 
couture for sure. Because I think it's so, it, nothing's easy in food, nothing's easy in fashion, but to make something that everybody likes and wants, that's so, so hard. <laughs> so yeah. hard. But you still, but both of you still appreciate, I mean, that's the thing, like, I mean, Scott, you, you just said it doesn't have to be one or the other, but that's kind of how it's portrayed, right? You're either avant-garde, snooty, experimental, intellectual, or you're, you know, populist, person of the people, basic, basic. But like, I know Dave for sure, while he is a champion of populism and in, especially in his, like this phase of his career is interested in, in, in feeding and touching as many people as he can. Um, the dude still appreciates the high end. Like, I mean, Dave, you still have great regard for the, 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 the high end and, and technical ability and creativity at that thing. So like, the dichotomy seems to exist for like consumer, but I mean, not to get too heady, but I'm, I'm sure Scott, like you still must appreciate couture and, and the high end very much. Right. I, I do. I, I mean, sure. No doubt. And, and really even just like the materials and stuff like that. And I look at all the fashion shows. They're a little rough to look at this past year. You know, fashion's supposed to reflect a moment and, and nobody has stepped up to that plate. It's, it's sort of <laughs> wait. Tell us, comical. tell us what that like. What is what? Is, I, what love, is, I, I love it when you talk shit. It's the best. Well, Please tell us. Listen, what that and looks I, like. listen, I think there's a bunch of talented people. Blah blah blah. <laughs> but the, there's been a year of fashion shows in like Paris and Milan and you name it. And with these, like nothing's changed. Just these models are marching down the runway. You know, just steadfast. <laughs> and and you know, they just had couture shows. Couture is in the season. It's not six months ahead because it's all custom made. So spring couture just happened. And I don't think they should be making sweatpants, mind you. Um, but none of it's reflecting, you know, where our lives are right now and what they're probably going to be for a couple of years. Um, and I find that a, a massive failure uh, creatively and otherwise business wise. Like on so many levels, it's just it's just so silly. So. I, I do love great fashion. It's not necessarily time for great fashion. It's been tough to watch the, the, the train wreck of the past year, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think that it's cyclical then? Because you talk about comfort and I, I, if I had a, and I am in this business, I am betting a lot that everything is going to go back to some version of comfort. And we, we have another podcast where we do recipes and, we had uh, landed on casseroles. I had never made a fucking casserole in my life, Ying. Nobody, you know, <laughs> nobody part of that podcast had ever made a casserole. And it was funny. It was like, I bet you most of America has made or eats casseroles. It has a casserole recipe from their home. And I was like, wow, that, that delta between, you know, being in the sort of foodie know-how of what happens and real average day Americans and what they eat. I was like, holy shit, this is terrifying. And it dawned on me, you're probably going to see casseroles on restaurant menus now. I guarantee it. I would bet my fucking life. I, I mean, that's how much I believe in it. You're going to see casseroles on a very fancy restaurant as a subse subsect of, you know, bottom of the menu. And it's going to be casserole for four people. And it's going to be like 400 bucks or something stupid like that. But This is the equivalent of Virgil Abloh being the creative director of streetwear designer, being the creative director of Louis Vuitton, which is the arguably the biggest luxury brand in the world, right? This is the $400 casserole on, <laughs> on, a, on a menu. Um, streetwear proliferating into high fashion, no doubt. And it is cyclical that way. And that's, that's the cerulean blue conversation uh, in reverse. That's the reciprocal of it. It's stuff trickling up from the street as opposed to trickling down. I mean, no doubt. I make a mean green bean casserole, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but is that a world we can be excited about where it's all comfort, meta comfort? You know, it's, it's, I don't know. While. That's what, that's what freaks, not freaks me out. It sort of depresses me because who's going to want to do something extraordinary? First of all, why can't a casserole be extraordinary? Right. And that's what <laughs> creativity and things can move forward. But I, it is, it's a, I don't think it's a cycle. I think it's a pendulum. I think taste, things that are driven by taste and really driven by consumerism and capitalism, right? Like getting people to want new things. That's what drives our businesses forward. Um, 
the pendulum's just going to keep swinging. I mean, fashion's really always been about that. You look at a Marc Jacobs show, Tina and I used to sneak into those shows. It was so much fun. From one season to the next, you kind of, if you weren't in fashion, wouldn't know it was Marc Jacobs because he would go from like, you know, like Victoriana one season to like 60s mod the next. And then it would be this weird 90s streetwear thing. And then back to the 30s. Um, and it was a little too fast the way that was working. But those those swings are, I think, what get people to buy more stuff. So no fear. We're not stuck in casserole land for too long. <laughs> I mean, it's part of it, though, like, you know, part of the appeal must be because it's not like entire world doesn't have like the same types of fans as band of outsiders did right there's it's you've got the same cutting edge people high fashion people who are like yeah i'm into this the basics now i'm into what is happening with this thing that was written off as lowbrow or just comfort like part of it is like a little uh whatever you want to call it, like anti establishment or something it's cool because like now sure. i'm 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 wearing just a sweat sweatshirt, just yep. a hoodie, right? Is that what once like everybody has gone into the hoodie thing, some kid is going to discover like, hey, what was this sous vide technology they used to have in cooking? I should experiment with this and like a rediscovery of the high end, right? So that's the cyclical thing we're talking about, right? Sure. Like, and you know what? As a brand and as a creative guy, like we have to be able to thread that needle, like whatever DNA we have here, like as things move away from, you know, what we're doing now, I think there's a very clear dotted line to whatever's next. If you, and you can do that really authentically if you have a set of design codes that are entrenched, like that can apply to, you know, a change of a mode of living or whatever it is. I think, I mean, you know, cause, but I also think that people need t-shirts and socks and underwear. Um, right. And that, that's, that's the part of the business where beyond the trend and all that, if it's actually good and soft and holds up and, you know, you like it, you're going to come, you're going to keep buying it anyway. Um, and we can supplement the business with, with something else that is relevant for the times. I mean, that's our job. That's a fashion designer's job. That's not a product designer's job is to really stay on top of that. Um, and to tell people what they want. But Scott, mm -hmm. at some point, and this is where you're wearing many hats, uh, at some point, on this trajectory of entire world and I've had to wear it and I realize I'm not very good at wearing this hat. You have to wear most of the time, the, the business person, I got to grow this. I got to pay back investors hat at some point that's just got to take over. And that's the least fun hat for someone that's a creative, you know, where do you want to take this company? Because do you want it to be the, the biggest thing that would be great, but also it comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I guess I would say I'm open and I shouldn't say that on your pod because like some investors probably listening, but <laughs> I think that it really depends on, uh, I need partners to do this. I need real partners. I've had a very disparate set of investors up until now, which is why you can't find sweats on the site. And depending on who that partner is and how, you know, at the first thing is that we got a vibe, unlike the band of outsiders partners at the end, which was an anti vibe, which is why that uh, IP is available for your next uh, culinary <laughs> venture. Um, so depending on where the partners go, I think it, who are, who the partners are, it could be a lot of things. Um, I want it to be, I have a lot of goals that are above, like I want it to be a hundred million dollar business or a billion dollar business. Like that's very abstract to me. And I think, the, 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 the sort of like day of Ralph, the Ralph Lauren's and the gaps, like building huge multi-billion dollar com apparel companies like that. I think that's over. Um, it's, you know, but I think this is a brand that has legs that can scale on a global level. I have, you were developing home products right now, like sheets and towels and stuff like that. And all this stuff around these codes of comfort and color and all this stuff. So. I'd like it to scale. It's not, it's not designed to be small. Um, and I'd like it to do that also, Dave, because I don't want to be, um, this, you know, hybrid hands in all these, you know, like doing everything all the time also. And because of my experience with band and, and kind of fucking things up, like doing that, like I kind of understand more clearly the steps where, 
um, I'm going to have to make choices and sacrifices and decisions to about where the company goes, where the brand goes, and really my role within it and what I'm best at. Very much more clear what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Um, so I'd like it to be big with, I'd like it to be big with the right partners. Um, and I'd like to not be raising money every day because that is, those are brutal soul sucking conversations. It's very soul sucking. <laughs> I'm just picturing you wheeling in a, a rack of clothes into just a bunch of boardrooms. Just being oh, like, they don't want to see the clothes. They don't even, <laughs> okay. like, they don't want to see the clothes at all. They want just they the no numbers. interest in the clothing, just like a deck. That's it. I'm sorry. I should laugh. That does sound terrible. Is that is is what Scott said a little different than the food world, Chang? Where, I mean, Scott, you don't think that the future has the gigantic gap, you know, companies, the the monolithic fashion companies. Is that different from food, Dave? Because I feel like food is headed toward more of that consolidation into these mega companies. Or am I just wrong? I think the days of the Shake Shack, maybe Sweet Green. Um, I mean, it's it's clear the future is Domino's, McDonald's, uh, Popeye's, Chipotle for sure. I mean, these companies. Everyone has to realize that if you are in the food business, no matter what you sell as an independent restaurant, you are competing against billion-dollar companies with access to public markets. Until we figure it out or come to that realization as a whole. We're going to fucking lose. <laughs> like, we need solidarity on our side mm-hmm. of the business. And right now, it's a bunch of like, it's just not organized. And, and we need to get our shit together. But that, I think, takes precedence before the next whatever happens. But I personally don't think that's going to happen. I think you're going to have these behemoths and you're going to have social media celebrity influencers. And the celebrity chef, whatever that is, I'm not saying that goes away, but it's going to probably morph into someone that is less a chef and more of a celebrity, like a Julia Child or something like that. That is going to be the norm again because chef, the word and the talent level has been commoditized, right? You don't have to, anyone could be a chef. And it's clear now after the pandemic, who gives a shit if you make fancy food or not? It doesn't travel well. People don't give a fucking shit about it. So this is why we go back to what is most useful. And I would bet that, listen, you have that Mr. Hype Beast dude burger guy who's just franchising <laughs> burgers. I don't even know mm-hmm. his name, but I, I've, I've heard some of the numbers he's doing. He's just a social media YouTube guy and he's franchising burgers and he's making money hand over fist and people can't get enough of it. Certainly it's going to be a bubble and it'll burst soon enough, but by the time it bursts, he's made, I don't know, gajillions of dollars. <laughs> this guy is not a chef. He doesn't even give a shit about burgers. Look at what Travis <laughs> Scott did with McDonald's. Why is Travis Scott an extremely talented artist? What the fuck does he know about <laughs> food? And he may be a good cook, but he doesn't know. I don't, I wouldn't advise McDonald's on fucking anything. <laughs> and like, I, I mean, I read a report that like, it was like $600 million of top line revenue generated by Travis Scott or something crazy like that. That to me is the future of food. It's individuals like Travis Scott moving the needle and it's no longer going to be a chef as, as, as Scott said earlier, the pendulum is going to shift the other way. And I just think chefs, not all chefs, but it's going to be a lot harder to make a, to become, you know, the biggest, baddest chef ever. Cause I just don't people give a shit about it anymore. Where's the physical space play into this in fashion, Scott? Cause I think a lot of what, you know, Dave and I talk about with the restaurant industry is like, it all boils down to real estate for restaurants as, as one of like the most painful points of trying to continue to do this up against your Chipotle's and everything. Because Chipotle can or McDonald's can go anywhere. It doesn't matter. I mean, just as long as there's traffic, but a restaurant has to have a quote unquote, you know, like fine dining restaurant has to have a beautiful location, has to have a, a, a ton of space for people to feel comfortable in, you know, is where, where does where does the physical store, the physical place play into fashion and, and what you're sure. doing? Sure. You know, the store is what really one of the things that killed Band of Outsiders because there was this idea that this this monolith, this 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 church to the brand had to exist as an inflection point to take us to the next level and as this accelerator and all this stuff. And it certainly could have been, and for many people is, uh, you know, 
a driver of sales and an important part of the brand. But for the most part, in the last 10 years, you would hear about these loss-leading flagship stores that brands had. Um, and even big brands, you know, and, and, and high traffic locations, they were just there to drive online sales or to drive sales to the store on the block or whatever it was. For me, like the biggest gift of the pandemic for our business was focus. And one of those clear points of focus was we're not going to go pop up store. Like that was the obviously first thing we decided, just get those off. And those are incredibly expensive and questionably effective. So, you know, what, the pandemic has made people really comfortable with e-commerce and just ordering clothes and returning the stuff that doesn't fit. Our business model is our markup is built on not a wholesale to retail anymore, but on the fact that we have a 15% return rate, exchange rate, because that's just the nature of clothes. So I, you know, we're not, we're not strapped, um, like, like you guys are at all. And. I, I think this is the people who are really screwed are, are the are the landlords um, because they've been so ridiculous for years. They just <laughs> just not still aren't really like moving the the floor the the rent floor anywhere down and sort of expecting these insane uh, these insane ten year leases and all that stuff. But I think fashion's better off without it. It'll come back. I, I mean, I still like personally like. I think it'd be a great thing for entire world in terms of driving people's understanding of how special this is forward. Um, but no, it's, um, we're good. You think, you'll have, uh, <laughs> you think you guys are going to embrace the big boy Asian model for your entire world line? Because you have two candidates on this podcast right now. I, I think when we do, if we need, I, I think you guys can fit into the clothes, but if we need we to, we're going to test it out. If we need to, if we need to do, if we need to do extended sizing, can I just call it like big boy Asian one and big boy Asian two? Like, instead of yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what size do you wear? I wear BBA two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can see the press release right now. Entire world spins off. <laughs> Extra large division, <laughs> boy Asian one and two. Um, oh my god! For those that are listening, and I can imagine this is the first time we've had someone that's in fashion on all our many episodes. And every time we introduce someone that maybe they have no idea or an industry they have very little idea about, can you tell them a little bit about sort of some of the influences and maybe what you think are like the best? designer. So someone could be like, oh, you just brought up Marc Jacobs. Maybe someone can not only look into what Band of Outsiders was, but they can study Marc Jacobs or something like that. Who are some of the biggest, best designers over the past 20 years or since you were in it? Because like, I would imagine some of my friends might be interested in knowing more about fashion because clearly if they've listened to this episode, they're gonna be like, oh, this is something I need to know more about. Sure. Yeah. And God, it's, I mean, it's infinite choices. I think a lot of good stuff is what your friends do know about, which are heritage brands. You know, anything from L.L. Bean, and great duck boots to Filson uh, with great, you know, canvas work coat or whatever it is. I personally, when I'm looking for new things, because I rarely shop for myself, always go into those zones, even Ralph Lauren to some extent. In terms of like what's happening now, because it's so hard to even think about five years ago, fashion is so about the now. The people who are doing what I think is really interesting work are uh, designers like uh, Jonathan Anderson, who designs for Le Leve, which is an LVMH brand, and his own brand, J.W. Anderson. I think he's just radical and cool. And he's like, you can tell he's not stuck in this like kind of arcane system. Like he's thinking well beyond this in terms of fashion shows aren't the most important thing to him and all that. I think, um, you know, I think, I think what Virgil Abloh is about at Vuitton is nothing I would ever want to wear, but it's like kind of an incredible like orgy of ideas that hmm. if you're not in fashion at all and you just want to look at just some like real, a real fashion show and, and even just look at his, look at his menswear for Vuitton because it's just, um, the spirit of what everything Tina taught me fashion should be, which is, um, joyful and, uh, just, just hyper creative and, um, kind of coming out of left field and, 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 and making that, making sense of that. I don't know though. Fashion, just like food, honestly, there's too many choices out there that even when you ask me the question, like my mm. brain just sort of turned to mush. 
Like my relationship, <laughs> my problem with food, it's not food. I love food. It brings me a lot of joy, but I actually only go to the same five restaurants because there's, I, I can't, I have to turn the choice button off um, and order the same thing every time I go. And I order the same wine every time I go. And um, so it's yeah. so funny. I'm the opposite in food, but the same in fashion. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I need variety. I need all of this shit, cutting edge stuff. But in fashion, I just want to keep it simple because I can't think about it. I, I don't have the bandwidth to think about what the latest trend is. I want my trend is no same. trend. <laughs> it's, I eat a bowl of oat bran every morning for breakfast. My my staff would just tease me, tease me that all my food was beige. Like that's how simple <laughs> I would keep things throughout the day. I, I got one more question that you may or may not be able to answer because this would be one more overlap between our worlds. Can reality, when you watch, or even if you do watch these reality fashion shows, are there really talented people that enter or when they win? Are they really good? Because mm. in the Top Chef world, there's been a, maybe three or four. The Michael Voltaggio, Kristen Kish. There's been a handful that have been really, really good. But it, Or like, I've talked to John Legend about the voice before and why voice. it's so difficult. I love the voice. Love why it. it's so difficult for <laughs> a winner to actually break through. Is it because of talent or they don't have something to say or they just went directly towards getting sort of the, the access. What is it about online fashion or not online fashion, reality show fashion that mm. maybe the people that are watching it don't understand and why it may not translate? Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't watched any of that stuff for years. I did watch, watch Project Run Runway at the beginning for the first several seasons. It was good television. It was fun to watch them like create stuff. I think like one guy, Christian Siriano, came out of that show and he has a nice business, what I understand. And he has a nice business because he understands the consumer. He's in the like, kind of like Michael Kors school of like how to, you know, sort of service your customer really well. And there's no ego there. And he was on like extended plus sizing and all that stuff and using uh, diverse models like well before anybody else. So I think. Generally, no. I think that the values around uh, what fashion is in that show is they're very old. It's, it's a very old idea of fashion that, you know, adornment and embellishment and ladies who lunch and all that stuff. It's just kind of irrelevant. And it's been increasingly irrelevant for years. I still go back, though, as an aside and listen to Michael Kors was really fucking funny on that show. His His little... His little quips are really good. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, what makes a good TV show is not what necessarily makes a good dress. And it's, it's, it's that simple. Um, yeah. And I think about that with the voice all the time as I'm crying my eyes out. Watching <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the conversation Chris and I have because we're developing reality TV shows for food. And, you know, it's, it's the constant argument of better TV may not produce like actual great cooking. So we're trying to find that, 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 that happy middle. One more question you brought up. Are we going to get away from the department store altogether since that's on its deathbed, right? So is DT no DTC and fashion is pretty much the future. And I think that's going to be a considerable part of the future for food. But is that the future? Yeah, I mean, listen, department stores, I think, well, the model in Europe, and like Harrods, for example, is a concession model. You, they don't buy your stuff. You rent space within Harrods, and you sometimes put your own staff in there, or maybe they put them in there and you train them. But department stores will become more real estate partners, right? Because essentially, they're just like magazines. They're editors. They just happen to buy the stuff and take the inventory instead of just like showing you the pictures of the stuff on a page and asking you to buy a book. Um so there's just no room for all these department stores. E-commerce killed it. You can get everything everywhere. And the local, the sad thing is the local boutique, you know, who used to have this ability to really be your editor and bring stuff to you that you had no access to, they're dying because you can get everything anywhere online. Um, so for the most part, there's just not room. There will be department stores that provide really, really, really good service and might be really exciting environments or whatever. Um, but I, I do think that for the like, I don't. I can't imagine Neiman surviving their bankruptcy in the at the end of the day with COVID accelerating everything. Um, and like, you don't need all these people to be online selling all the same luxury goods. Like, 
if Celine can sell it themselves, why don't you just buy it from them? So yeah, I think that there's a post department store world. Uh, it's not all direct. I think, you know, there's, there's a Italy, you know, sort of <laughs> thing there about department stores that's relevant. I mean, what's the parallel in, in food? Um, my dystopian future uh, <laughs> with food. Uh, talk about being a <laughs> Cassandra. Like, um, in terms of that, whether it's department stores or not, restaurants aren't going away. You will have in urban centers like New York a handful that are going to fucking crush. And I think you're going to see the great um, price change. It's going to be uh, extremely expensive to go out to dine. I think it was one of the great discounts, weirdly enough. Mm. Um, and some of the restaurants that are going to thrive are going to be complete experiences like we've never seen before. Probably, you know, maybe way back 100 years ago or something like that. And I could see a restaurant having Hamilton-like ticket prices. Um, those are the things that are going to do extremely well. Um, and as you said, with the boutiques being gone, that's my concern with the small mom and pop shops and anyone trying to do it like a, a mid-sized restaurant. It's going to be incredibly difficult. People are always going to try to do those things. And there will be some Darwinism where, you know, the cream will rise to the top, I guess. But the mid-market is going to be flattened and you're just going to see chains and the crazy expensive, super high-end restaurants. Um, and that gives me great concern. I, I, and the mid-market can't be delivery companies. That's what it's going to be. Um, Dave, I mean, we talk about this all the time. It, as, as Did I just depress everybody? Because I, I try not to a little depressed. No, share, share you, that. You, you, you talk like about the Hamilton this. bit. Sorry, go on, <laughs> You Chris. talk about this all the time, Dave, as like... Uh, the pandemic has fundamentally changed a lot of things for restaurants, but also for consumers' relationship to food. And, I mean, Dave, you have sort of predicted, I think, on this show, yeah, there's going to be a big run on restaurants when the world opens up again. Everyone's going to be crazy to go see Hamilton, to go to a restaurant and see things. But after that initial kind of bump, we're going to see a new restaurant landscape. And, I mean, Scott, before we got on this call, you were sort of talking about something very similar in in how this pandemic and and Zooming all day long has fundamentally changed, you know, our relationship with like looking at ourselves all the time. What do you, do you see, can you, can you give us our, your, your Cassandra, your Oracle here of, uh, what happens to fashion, like in the immediate time when we open back up and then like, what's going to stick about the way that we've all changed fundamentally during this past, you know, 12 turning into 36 months. Sure. I mean, I definitely see like a, you know, post-depression, roaring party moment and just the whole boas and feathers and everything <laughs> happening and this full, you know, people expressing their their glee and their uh, pent-up, you know, emotion through fashion and and going out and, and dressing to the nines and all that stuff. Um, no doubt. I think, I don't know how long or short-lived that will be. What I, I believe, and maybe it's a self-serving belief, but sorry, there's a helicopter. I believe that this idea that clothing can be comfort, comfortable and, and can be about comfort and it's like self-care and aligned with that, um, it can make you feel good. I don't think people are going to let that go so fast. And that doesn't mean you're going to be walking around in sweatsuits all day. Um, but just, I think that'll become a design value that fashion designers are going to have to embrace um, to be relevant. And I think that's so cool. Like that's, it's been dismissed uh, or seen as giving up for so long. Um, so that's my optimistic ish. So much more optimistic than me. Tina's wrong about us. She's like, you guys have the same temperament and the same sort of demeanor and outlook. And I was like, no, I think he's more optimistic than I am. So it depends on the true. day, man. You got me on a good day. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, I, I want to continue to chat, but I got I got to feed my son who's going to freak out any moment because he's Fair not enough. getting fed. So I could talk to you all day long. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on this pod. Is there anything you want to plug? Is there anything that you need to get out to the world? Other than the entire is, world? I feel like I've been plugging the whole time. Just check it out. <laughs> Theentireworld.com. Thank you. Thanks, Scott.
Really like that conversation with Scott. Please check out his line, Entire World. You can check it out, www.entireworld.com. We should probably talk about fashion more. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Love your comments about this podcast. If this is something that interests you, maybe we'll get different kinds of guests from different kinds of fields that sort of align with where and what business is going and how crazy the world is. And uh, I, I really do see a lot of parallels. And maybe you disagree. Love to hear. Send in your questions to askdave at majordomamedia.com. Thank you for all of those individuals giving us five stars on our Apple page. Continue doing so. We'll give you guys shout outs. Five stars for us. Five stars for you. That's it, guys. Have a great weekend, all. <laughs>